three, two, one. Go. All right. All right, you're registered. You gotta speak a little bit louder, though. Okay. So I'm, I'll do uh, my best. Wait. I was introducing myself. Okay, go ahead. Okay. I'm John Wayne Jr. And this is Maxine, or Max for short. Or Maxine. I like Max, though. Yeah, but I don't want to. It's like a dog's name. I don't want to be sexually attracted to someone named Max. <laughs> Especially since I had a dog named Max, which you know. Oh, and he right. Died, oh, okay. So. Bad idea. Okay, Maxine. Yeah, there we go. Okay. Which reminds me more of Maxine Nightingale. Who's that? She had that one song in the 80s that was on Slapshot with uh, Paul Newman. Cause it's alright and we're coming home. We're gonna bring it right back to where we started from. Love can be good. I'll play it for you later. Okay. Although I think I did a pretty good job. That's yeah. I'm surprised I can't recognize it. So uh, we're talking to you on the first episode of today in World War Two, and the whole podcast was inspired by our recent visit to New Orleans, where we went to the World War Two Museum. It's pretty cool. Yeah, well, it was your first time, right? Yeah, yeah. I had never been to New Orleans. New Orleans? New Orleans, babe. New Orleans. New Orleans, babe. Um, I'd never been there. I'd never been to Louisiana. Um, I had always wanted to go, so it was pretty exciting. Yeah. And that was, that was the thing I knew you had to see. Because I had gone, when it first came out, I, I'd have to, I should have looked that up, the history of the D-Day Museum. Because it was first, it was just the D-Day Museum. Yeah. And I told you about why. Because Higgins, the guy who made the Higgins boats, which yeah. were used in the invasion of Normandy, uh, is from New Orleans. It's from New Orleans. That's why they had those at the entrance, right? Correct. Of the museum. Yeah. And the production of those was in New Orleans as well. And so I guess whenever they wrote the grant, that was their big selling point. Because um, mm. when, when it first opened up, there was like a huge... Not huge, but there was a individual display about Higgins and, and what he did and how uh-huh. his invention basically propelled that whole invasion, which is pretty cool that a dude from New Orleans yeah. in the early 1900s invented something that, you know, five, six different nations used to defeat the worst uh, yeah. fascist of all time. Yeah, that is, that is pretty wild. Um, I wonder why they took that, that whole thing out then. They should... I wonder it's still there's there. a wing What's still there? to him. Mm. Yeah, we missed it. Well, it's because uh, it was so, the D-Day Museum was so successful, and it came out post-Katrina. Mm. Uh, and so that was one of the, like, you know, post-Katrina in New Orleans, uh, if something was new, you were going to go to it because mm. you knew it wasn't wrecked, right? So that was like something new post-Katrina. Gotcha. I think now, man, I really hope it opened post Katrina or I'm going to sound like an idiot. Anyway, super successful. And I guess they were able to ask for more money and they went from like one building that just covered D Day. Now they have like four buildings that, that covers the whole war. And what was really cool was the first thing we saw was a special exhibit they were doing. Yeah, that was really a, a neat surprise because I wasn't expecting that. And obviously you weren't either because it was a new exhibit. And I hadn't read anything about their the current exhibits there. So it was really nice surprise to walk into that because it's a very different type of exhibit than from what I was expecting right off the bat. So it was really cool. Yeah, especially because I had gone... That was, that was like my fourth visit to the museum. And so... Nice. I was going with you, you know, because I knew you wanted to do it, but I was kind of like, well, well, I've seen all this. Yeah. I'm also super hungover, and I also (laughs) have only had, like, four hours of sleep, but I... Whose fault was that, though? (coughs) Totally mine. Yeah, good. No one else's. Doesn't mean it's not not (laughs) fun. Anyway, so whenever we got there, and that was the first thing I saw, it was really cool because it kind of revitalized me, and it made me... uh, look at the museum with new eyes because they have made a lot of improvements to it for sure yeah i think it's really smart 
for a museum to begin an exhibit with an emotional connection because if you can, you know, usually you walk in a museum and sometimes you're kind of detached. And so... Immediately? You mean immediately Yeah, detached? immediately. Yeah. yeah. And so when... You just have a bunch of, like, paintings that you have no idea why they got famous and you don't even know who the artist was. Yeah, yeah. exactly. But, but you started off with some emotional connection to one guy and his story, and then it just kind of opens up from there. So it's really cool. And what was significant was recently at work, I was talking to the guys, and I was kind of... Uh, I went on a rant. You're a male stripper, right? Yeah, correct. Oh, okay. So I was talking to the guys in the back in the showroom, like we call it. Uh, <laughs> my guys uh, blazing saddles and uh, <laughs> and too much meat. But <laughs> anyway, when I was talking to the guys at work, and they, you know, we were talking about superhero mu- movies, and I just got pissed off, and I was like, you know, why don't they just make more movies about World War Two? Oh, yeah. Because there's so many individuals like this guy, Guy, his name's Guy, but God. there's so many individuals like Guy de Montleur and so many units like the Japanese-only unit that was recruited, which we, they had like a whole exhibit about them. You know, I mean, there's the wars, the battles that happened in the, the China, which yeah. was really cool, the exhibit they had there because... That's something I never really thought about. I always knew it was huge, and, and Dan Carlin put out a podcast about the um, tensions between Japan and, and China. Oh, right, yeah. <clears throat> but uh, hearing the Americans and the Allies, I guess I shouldn't say Americans, the Allies' effort in China was pretty cool because yeah. that was like the original Delta Force dudes just got dropped in there with like nothing, and they get some supplies that took like six months to get there because of, you know, we didn't have everything we have now. So they went by boat, by plane, by boat, by plane. And they're training all these, you know, very uncivilized dudes who were wearing loincloths and used to like shitting in holes in the ground (laughs) and to fight the Japanese. And it's super cool when you go to that museum and see that whole story. So if, if like HBO did a, even like a one season miniseries on that, group of characters man i would be fascinated instead i get game of thrones and like dragons and mm. you know like stuff that's not real yeah but no, I, I have know what you and mean. there are exactly. so many real heroes out there absolutely and the real hero we're going to talk about today is guy de montlaur guy de montlaur he has a much longer name Let's see. With about four more words. I didn't print it out because I didn't even want to try it's to say Guy, it. I got it. Or I got it. Oh. Guy Joseph Marie de Villardi Comte de Montlar. Beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> and I am a French Acadian and I couldn't even get that. So. But yeah, Guy, uh, I'm really glad he's got an easy first name. He was born September 1918 in Biarritz. Which has mentions in many Hemingway books, in case you didn't know. And uh, he was from one of the oldest French families in the country at that time. And that's kind of interesting because the French had had their whole revolution. So royalty wasn't like royalty in other countries. Mm. But he still came, I mean, he he grew up near a castle. Oh, really? Yeah. He grew up in the Chateau de Montleur. Oh, so is that are they your names based out of the place? So is Montlar a place? I think so because once you oh. owned a land, it was your last name, uh, right? I don't like know. Like the Duke of the Duke of uh, what's what's a Nottingham? Oh, like that dude was probably named Nottingham, right? I don't know. I don't That's know. That's a good either. question. Anyway, we'll we'll talk about that after we okay. know more about it. And uh, he, his family was in World War One, right? Like a lot of his family yeah, his, members. His dad uh, died when he was still alive, of course, because he had to. Anyway, <laughs> yeah. But anyway, his dad survived World War One, but then died later of complications because of gases that he had experienced oh, in World right. War One. So he comes from a military family mm-hmm. for sure, and uh, after his dad dies. Um, he was a young boy. 
He died from lingering effects of being gassed in World War One, and after that he moved to Paris. And there was a couple of interesting things that I saw about him. One, um, he had Italian and Brazilian mixed into him. Ooh, Brazilian. So, yeah, Brazilian on his mom's side, and he had Italian from somewhere. So he wasn't, you know, he was a mutt like a mm. lot of Americans. He had a, he had a bunch of mixes going on. And uh, they say as soon as he was, you know, able to, he started to paint from a young age. And he studied literature, philosophy at the Sorbonne. And uh, what was the most interesting thing? Um, I read something that he, early on, he knew that he was going to have to fight the enemy. Did you read anything about that? No, I did not. That he had, like, he, he had some understanding that there was going to be... Um, or some form of, I, I won't, not prediction, but that he knew that in his life he was going to have to fight some kind of enemy. I read something like that, but I don't well, remember exactly what it was. I mean, it makes sense because Dan Carlin said it in one of his podcasts, I think, or I had a history teacher tell me, but basically up until World War II, uh, it was expected that Germany was going to go to war every 30 years. Mm. they had this habit of just going to war with their neighboring countries and trying to get more territories like every 20, 30 years, starting from like the 16, 1700s. That's and it, it had gone on for a long time where they were always... And yeah. yeah, they were all like that back then. I mean, France and England and had many Eng wars. Yeah. So I'm That's sure... He had that sense of duty, especially since his father yeah. died. So. Yeah. But it's funny. Uh, it, oh, this is the thing I was trying to find. So he studied, and he went to Paris, and every day he would go to the Louvre, which is a very famous art museum in Paris, in case you didn't know. Have you ever been? I haven't been. I never, mm. I've never been to Paris. Oh, yeah, me either. And uh, that's where he would, you know, he saw all the people that he was inspired by to paint. And then the funny thing I saw is he studied philosophy, and he's a painter, but every morning he would wake up and he would mount racehorses with the jockeys. Oh, nice. Yeah, so he sounds like he was probably just a very cool guy. Yeah, definitely a little wild. Yeah, little and wild he had um, they all of his titles for his paintings apparently came from poets as well. Yeah. So he was very into poetry. And I read, too, he was really into Bach, which is interesting. If you look at his paintings and you know um, Bach's music, because uh, I think, and it was somewhere in there, too, that he would listen to Bach every day as he was painting. Yeah. And so um, it, his paintings do have that kind of... I know nothing about Bach. Well, it's a very... Um, pretend, hey, pretend like you're talking to a retard that doesn't know about music. <laughs> because that's me, and so that's whoever else is listening. Uh, no, yeah, well, I mean, it's been a while <coughs> since I listened to Bach, but when, you know, when I was studying like music... 12 hours, or...? You had, no, I had years. But if you listen to Bach, you hear it's very controlled, and they have... Um, he has... Well, the Baroque period, but, but Bach in general, or more specifically, would have these very complex melodies, and it was when they started messing with um, counterpoint, which was the term I was looking for right now, and it's like when, a, when part, of the part of the melody goes one way and the bass goes the other way, and so it creates this kind of dissonance, and if you he see his paintings, you see that dissonance in it you know the the colors and the and the cubism or whatever that he had you know it's very kind of strict which goes a lot with the Bach which I thought that was interesting have you got called a nerd before no okay never never no I've always been cool I've always been the cool kid yeah okay I was I mean that's insightful I just you know it's cool because no, you yeah, yeah, to yeah, it yeah. Every no, day. it's definitely cool <laughs> But isn't it funny that Bach was like the Taylor Swift of the day? He was a rock star. What are you talking about? That's what I'm about? talking about. Like he was like the pop idol of the day. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah. And I mean, his stuff was wild. He had a lot of um, just wild harmonies that people didn't hear before. You think he got groupies? Oh, I'm sure. I mean that. You think he? Oh yeah. Fucked. Oh yeah, with that wig too. 
with the wig on? Yeah. Do you think he had a wig for his dick? You think he had a dick wig? I, don't, I didn't know that was a thing. <laughs> a dick wig. That's not a thing. How you dare think he you? powdered the pubes a little bit down there and he had a little white white hair? Um you've derailed the conversation. I was talking right, let's about go back. Bach, let's talk about how cool this dude was. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. Just yeah. people well, know the difference. Yeah, whatever. Dicks on the brain. Anyway, so he was pretty cool. He uh, he did a studying, and then he met an American woman in thirty-seven. American woman in Paris. <laughs> Adelaide Oates, which sounds like a porn star. Uh. <laughs> but, uh, he <laughs> say it again. Adelaide Oates. Oh wow! Sounds like a, a porn star that specializes in barn style softcore porn. Yeah, barn style. <laughs> uh, and he married her six years later. And he stayed with her for the rest of his life. And so then in 1938, uh, after the Munich Agreement, he left for his military service. And then pretty much for the rest of his life, he was in the military. Yeah. Was he in the military after? Did he stay after the war? Yeah, we'll get oh, to that. Okay. And some of this, it's funny because in the exhibit, they have kind of a lot of different things that I didn't find online. Mm. So I'm, I, I really want to... We'll have to, like, do a follow-up with some of this information, see how it meshes. But basically, uh, if you know nothing about World War II, Germany all of a sudden got froggy and leaped at all its neighbors. Froggy. Yep. Like and that. it went after the frogs first. Uh, so you, the Germans, what, they did Austria, Poland, and then France, correct? I thought Poland was first. Was no, Austria was first because they had the annexation. Oh, okay, okay. And then after everyone was like, okay, don't really do that. And then Hitler was like, okay. And then he takes over Poland in like nine days. Mm. And then they go after France. And the thing about, we talked about this before the podcast and during the podcast, but they were used to this kind of war with the Germans. So they had all their defenses prepared on the Maginot line, mm-hmm. which is where Guy was with a, a cavalry regiment and uh the thing that changed world war ii was they decided to flank them with their blitzkrieg with all the panzer tanks and yeah. they were able to get around their flank super quick yeah much quicker than anyone had ever predicted because it was a totally new technology and they were basically like if aliens came today and will smith only had an f-15 yeah that's what they were looking at right yeah. so they were the aliens and france is will smith with the f-15 he's going to take some punches before he can figure out what's <laughs> going on right yeah anyway so he's with a unit that's forward and he spends a couple of years on the line uh fighting the germans doing raids and uh, let's see i want to give exact dates so 1939 was when it started september um, and he was doing raids into Germany with his, his cavalry unit. So they were still attacking the Germans in certain locations. And then when they folded, uh, 1942, he crossed to Spain. So this is the part where the internet didn't pick up what the museum did. Mm-hmm. For that period between 1939 and September and 1942, he was a part of the French resistance and he was out on the lines trying to mess mm-hmm. with the German supply lines or do anything to damage the Germans' military power at all times. And okay. he, was, he was really in the thick of it for a couple of years. And <clears throat> they mentioned in the museum, but I think he had gotten – he was just tired. Like he was worn out. Yeah. He, he had war weariness because he was I – mean, you got to imagine the anxiety – that comes with knowing that you could die today. Yeah. You know? Yeah. No, I can't ex- imagine. Yeah, I can't either. And he imagined that. He I mean, he had that, not imagine that. He had that every day for like two years. Yeah. So here's something interesting that I wonder if you read up on. Because, so, when the Germans took or invaded France and... So there was the French resistance and then there was like the free French... I, I'm I'm wondering whether it's two different things, because like the yeah, French it is. resistance and we'll was. we'll get to that. The free French armies you're talking yeah. about. Yeah. Yeah, it's two different things. Okay. So, so he, was, he a was a part, part of, of the, the French, French army, 
and then when the when the armistice happened and Paris surrendered and they basically occupied France, the Germans right. occupied France, he became a part of the resistance. Right. And when he was a part of the resistance, that's when he was out forward, like trying to, you know, fuck up the Germans every which way till Sunday uh, for a couple years on the run. And then after two years of that, he makes his way down to Spain, which was neutral during the war, quote unquote. Mm -hmm. They were kind of like, they were neutral, but they were used by both sides. Yeah. So he makes his way down to Spain and he meets up with the MI6 at that point, which is the British Intelligence Agency. And I think he was a part of, oh man, I forget the name of it, but Churchill had like a group... Of oh like, yeah you remember i told you about, about this yeah. yeah there's a there was a group that was like more secret than the mi6 and it was like churchill's band of miscreants or something like that they had a really cool name or like unruly gentlemen of warfare yeah it was some cool name like that yeah what's cool i mean just as a side note what's interesting about the french resistance too is that it wasn't just military people so a lot of the French resistance was also people publishing stuff and information and civilians. Like oh, it was everything. Arms. Yeah. And so it's and that's, super they, crazy. Yeah. And, and the internet says MI6, but I think it was more likely that other group, because that other group would just take anyone. Like you could be anybody. And as long as you had a use to mess up German supply mm-hmm. or German, whatever, like pass information, like trip a German, double knotted German shoes when they're supposed to be single knotted. Like, they did everything just to mess with the Germans in any way. And uh, anyway, so he he was with them for, let's see, 1942, he crossed into Franco, Spain. He arrived in Lisbon, and he was there for three months with MI6. And so after that, I think he requested to go to England so he could kind of get some rest. That's Mm. the way that the World War II Museum said it. And Mm. he probably was able to, you know, shake off all the dreariness he experienced there and the the stress mm-hmm. and at that point he joined the free french which is what you were talking about right okay and in october 1942 so these are the free french i want to make sure i get it right so uh what was the guy's name de gaulle yeah the the french guy he still got a street in new orleans oh does he really oh yeah they um, love the french down there oh well yeah makes sense so <laughs> So he he did a speech at some point once the Germans invaded to tell everyone to come to England and fight yeah. for France. And and that's what yeah. I think that was the spark that started the French resistance well, yeah. to begin with, right? Yeah, and, and, and you know, like the French they were kind of screwed over because they were right next to Germany. Yeah. The only reason why England survived is because of the channel. The English channel. Yeah, I mean they were on the cusp of being absolutely defeated and we talked about this in the movie Dunkirk, if you want to cover, like how the French soldiers kind of, I gotta get another beer. So Mario oh, give me my whiskey. Soldiers. Oh, bring me some ice, will you? Okay, okay. Cover the French soldiers. So was it the Special Operations Executive? Yes, SOE. The SOE. Okay, so the SOE. That was what we were talking about. This was Churchill's kind of underground. What's world. the other name for it, though? The Churchill's what? Um. I don't know. I don't see it. All right, we'll move on. Talk the about the French soldiers. The special resistance. So, um, I'm trying to look for the other name. So, what? talk about what French soldiers? In Dunkirk. Oh, um, in the opening scene, right, when the main character uh, and a few of the... <coughs> well, a few of the British soldiers, only the main guys... If you alive. haven't seen the movie Dunkirk, just... Stop. Go kill what you're yourself. Doing. Stop what you're doing. You obviously aren't a good person. No, it's a great movie. You should watch it. It's all about uh, the beginning days of World War II and how the, all of the Allies almost got eliminated within a couple of days. Yeah, and so in that opening scene, there's there's a couple British soldiers going towards the coast um, of Dunkirk uh, to. Hopefully, they're hoping to cross back to England uh, because they've been, they're being overrun. And all, oh, my kid, this is open. Right. Uh, so, 
Where's the cap? Oh. <laughs> you already opened it, you goober. I thought anyway, you so they, it. Anyway, so they're going to try and escape back to the UK. And the, the main character passes by some French troops who are kind of still like lined up World War One style over a barricade waiting for the Germans to come run over them with their tanks. And they're just waiting. And they're just waiting to get demolished. And the, so it's, it's funny how... Uh, there is kind of a, it's a funny thing to say and talk about how the French surrender and all this stuff, but every country that was next to Germany surrendered, and the only reason the UK didn't was because of that channel, and they were getting their and ass Churchill. kicked. Yeah, and they were getting their ass kicked until the US showed up. So give the French a break, especially if you read about Guy de Montlaire, who, by the way, one thing I want to cover. Look up a picture of them because, oh man, I feel so sorry for the kids today. They see like Chris Hemsworth and like Channing Tatum and they're like, oh, this is what a man has to be like. <laughs> that dude looks so normal, it's ridiculous. But, but you he look was into his. You, yeah. Oh, I mean, well, I mean, yeah. Well, the French are always handsome. Oh, right. Yeah, because I mean, I'm from Louis Louis. Anyway, oh. no, but. He looks normal, right? But yeah. you look into his eyes and a few of the pictures they have, and he looks like a killer, bro. Yeah. Like, he looks like a fucking killer. And that's what I think people don't understand is there's, like, an instinct there. Then that dude had it, and he was able to tap into it. So let's get into some of his uh, heroics since I'm talking them up. Wait, does uh, the Cumberbatch guy play him? Benedict Cumberbatch? Yeah. No. Unless it's an upcoming movie. Oh. Well, there's He's a picture English, of him. Anyway. No, I know. It's just this picture. Came, I was looking at pictures and it oh, came okay. up. I don't know. If that's a new movie, I know. If it's a new movie, I don't know about oh. it. So anyway, he, uh, he joins the Free French in London in October 1942. And he joins the uh, 1st Battalion of Fusiliers Marine Commandos. And basically, they're, they are the French version of the Navy SEALs because the nature of the geography of the war at that time, the UK was on one side and France was on the other. A lot of it was naval raids and having to do naval scouting and you're having to figure mm -hmm. out like which ports you can, you can go into, which ports you can't. Yeah. So a lot of those units would go forward almost exactly like what the Navy SEALs were designed to do. And they had to be like part aquatic, part land. So mm -hmm. they would go in in units of 12 to 50, and they would have to take on a force that was much larger, and they would usually try and sneak around that force, but if they had to, they would they would fight. And uh, they were paired up with a Brit British force as well. So it was 177 French, and they were commandos. Um, he landed in Normandy, and he was also a part of uh, Market Garden. He was a total badass. Because those are the two biggest invasions of the war. Uh, yeah. What was the beach? Did he land? He landed on like Sword, Sword Beach? Yeah. So if you don't know anything about the invasion of Normandy, the Americans had one section and the Brits and the Canadians had a whole other section. And the French, which were a smaller force, were attached to the Brits to the and the Brits. Canadians. And the, the Brits actually weren't that big of a force either. But anyway, so they, he went on Sword Beach, and this is what I want to talk about. Uh, and, and honestly, it chokes me up reading it. And it's if someone were ever to say this about me, I, I think I would have lived a good life. But he went on D-Day, and uh, Guy Vorch, I don't know how to say his last name. He was the troop commander at D-Day and made the following comment in his eulogy for Guy de Montleur. So two guys on 13 August 1977 at the cemetery of Rainville. Mm. And so this is his friend. This is Guy de Montleur's friend who served with him, talking mm -hmm. about him at his funeral. He said, I saw him when he arrived early 1943. I offered him the chance to join the commandos, which were the modern equivalent of the cavalry, an arm used for reconnaissance and lightly armed bold raids. From that time onward, we were always together. First as group leaders, then as section leaders, training together with Commandant Kifur, Lofi Hatu Chus Bigu, and Walleron. We built up together an instrument of attack. 
which had the honor of being chosen as first to land here on our native soil of France. When all of the officers of my company were wounded, it was Guy de Montlieu who took over in command, later at Flushing and Walcheren, I butchered that, Walcheren, wounded as he was near me, he refused to be evacuated. His courage was close to insolence. He was not just fighting, but humiliating the enemy. By the age of 25, he had received seven citations for valor in battle and the Croix de Guerre and the French Legion of Honor. Mm. Humiliating the enemy. Isn't that cool, the mm. way he phrased that? I wish we yeah. could still talk like that. But yeah, he's 25 years old. You know what I was doing at 25? Yeah. I had graduated college, finally, with uh. a bachelor's in general studies. <laughs> I know, it's wild. Yeah, and so what he talks about there is he was on Sword Beach, and the French commandos were, uh, they apparently had gotten the honor of being first to land in that invasion mm. and as soon as they landed which i mean if you haven't seen saving private ryan or anything about the the normandy invasion uh some of those beachheads were total slaughterhouses because the germans had their sights in you know with all their mg40 machine guns which were yeah. machines of just massive destruction uh and they had all the mortar rounds sighted in as well yeah, and then they also put all kinds of crazy stuff on the beaches, right, to, like, trip up the yeah. soldiers. And so all of his officers died, and he just took charge. And he was probably, uh, from what I'm reading, he was probably close to a lieutenant. So if you don't know anything about the military, a lieutenant would be, like, the most, it would be, like, an assistant manager. And if mm. you do know something about the, the, mil the military, then I don't have to explain what a lieutenant is. But he took command of all the French troops that day at that beach. Uh, and that's pretty cool. Mm. And then later, uh, they talk about the second invasion uh, in Holland. And I think, uh, I need to check it actually, but I'm pretty sure that's Market Garden that they're talking about when he went in. In and he Holland? got his face, yeah, when he got his face shot in uh, the Netherlands. It could have been, yeah. I know that, that was another beach too, no? Mm, well, that was an airborne thing. But he was on the beach for that part of it. But he uh, took a German cannon to the face and had shrapnel in his face, and he still kept in his fighting. Face in his face had shrapnel from a cannon, and just kept fighting and didn't care. And, he, and to this, well, not to this day, but to the day he died, he still had that shrapnel in his face because they could never take it out. That's yeah, pretty. Yeah, and it like gave him headaches and pain and stuff, huh? Yeah, and so yeah, it is because on uh, it says it here in this next paragraph. On first November nineteen forty four, he took part of the Allied landings of Flushing on the Isle of Walcheren in Holland, Operation Infatuate, where he was wounded when his barge was hit by a German shell. The operation was led against an enemy ten times greater in numbers than the Allies, and was a total success. It opened the Scheldt River to the Allied troops and allowed them to access the port of Antwerp in northern Germany, opening the road to Berlin and leading to the end of the war. Hmm. And then uh, he's also a movie star. He was mentioned in a book uh, called The Longest Day, which was later turned into a movie. And in 1962... It was uh, debuted and ended up winning two Oscars. So that's pretty cool that he got some kind of fame there. Yeah, one thing that I was reading about the exhibit. So when you walk in, you you start to read about his life. And you get the introduction, kind of what we've been talking about. And then if you remember, you go a little bit further and you see this video um, of veterans talking about their shell shock or... What we call they, what today they call PTSD. it? They call it stress. I, they I, had like a weird word for it, nervousness. Well, I know one was shell shock and one was battle fatigue. That's what the sign said, but the soldiers in the video were calling oh, it something. Oh, I don't remember exactly yeah. what the word, but interesting. That video was made by John Houston, the director. What was his name? 
I don't know who John Huston is. Yeah, um, he's the guy that did the Casa, uh, Casa Blanca. No, 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 the Sierra Blanca movie. Uh, but he also went to yeah Sierra, John Houston Sierra Blanca, what's that? Um, well it doesn't matter, but it it was one of his you most famous movies. What do you mean it doesn't matter? Because I don't no Sierra Madre. Still don't know. He did that one movie with um, that one movie. Uh, it's just it's been so long <laughs> since that. He was a famous director in any case, and what I'm getting at sure. is he went over to um he joined the army and he did this video which was recording oh so he's famous back in the 40s well he's a pretty famous director um oh okay. he's so famous i never heard of okay him. okay you want me to give you his filmography i would be curious if we did a pocket poll right now of five people everybody knows who john houston is they did this whole thing <clears throat> you might not know his, you might not know his movies yeah but I still don't know. So anyway, that movie in the museum is called "Let There Be Light," and it was a documentary about so, these veterans. Are you talking about the soldiers that were in hospital attire and they yeah. would all talk and they yeah. sounded like robots almost? So that's a documentary, yeah. And those are real veterans and real soldiers. And he talked. He was the one that directed it. And he did that movie. What was the thing? Do you remember what I I pointed out was the most significant thing about that video? Um, so there was one soldier in that video and he speaks up oh, and he's yeah. really young and he says, I think it's important because it's like the whole video is, uh, it's a group of 20 soldiers in fatigues, kind of relaxed, relaxed environment and a doctor and they're talking, you know, back and forth. It's an open discourse about. Uh, PTSD basically is what we would call it today. Yeah, exactly. Then it was called like wartime nervousness or whatever or stress and or battle fatigue. And this one soldier who looks like a kid, I mean like 17, he says the verbiage he chooses is very interesting. He says, I think it's important that we soldiers who either experienced or did not experience combat know that this nervousness and then blah, 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 a bunch of other stuff. Yeah. But what was interesting was the did not experience combat. Because I told you something at that point that you didn't really know, and I don't think a lot of people know. Yeah. Which is a, the majority of modern day uh, PTSD is not actually from troops that have experienced combat. Yeah, which is wild. It's from support troops. And so that's why this guy, this guy, guy, the mm -hmm. Frenchman, who is a total badass painter, is so special because he was in and around gruesome war and thinking he was going to die for six, seven years. Yeah. And he kept fighting the whole time. He kept going. And that includes one injury, which most people would just be like, I'm good, bro. That's my ticket yeah. home. Can I just stop now? Yeah. I have metal in my face from a explosion of a shell. Yeah. And he said, nah, bro, you invaded my country. Yeah. I'm going to fuck you up until you are saying uh, I'm, I'm fucking well, tapping out. I think out. That's, a, that's a good point, though, because he was French, so his country was completely invaded. Oh, yeah. So they gave for, up. You know, I mean, he had, to have felt, he had to have felt uh, uh, something that I hope I never feel. Yeah, you know? well, that's what I mean. Like, if you're an American fighting uh, in Ger in Germany or in France, maybe you don't have the exact same feelings because you have a home to go back to. Like, this guy doesn't have a home. You yeah. know, like, it's gone. So I wonder if that has something to do with it. So real quick, John Huston. Okay, so he's a big-time director. The Treasure of the Sierra Madre was one of his biggest ones. Oh, okay. Key Largo, uh, The oh. Asphalt Jungle, oh. The Red Badge of Courage, oh. The African Queen, oh. Moby Dick, oh. The Misfits. Never That's... seen any of those movies. So The Misfits is a punk rock band. You can't fool me. <laughs> What's what what I wanted to kind of get into <laughs> though with with that is like how cuz Netflix had this one series of all these directors and and movie makers that dropped everything and John Huston was one of these guys who dropped everything he had a movie career um and I think it was the same with some baseball players or something who dropped everything and went 
to fight. You oh, don't yeah. see that anymore. Oh, yeah. And I just thought it was really Oh, no, you do. Did you ever hear about... Uh, well, I'm sure you... Yeah. I mean, no, there's one guy in particular. Yeah. Uh, and maybe one day, if we ever don't cover uh, World War II, we'll cover him. You ever hear about the guy Pat... Uh, shit, I can't even remember his last name now. Now I feel bad. There was a guy who was a famous... like He, he was well off, and this is in the last 10 years, 10, oh, 15 okay, years. Okay. Uh, and there's a documentary up on amazon prime right now about him but anyway he he was well enough where he wouldn't have had to do it yeah but he joined the fight and he went to afghanistan and he ended up dying him and his brother yeah yeah i mean that that's probably not nice but a big no i know it's not yeah yeah well i'm just clarifying because i said he he died died yeah and i said yeah nice before you said that yeah so but I just I, didn't I, know, I know you don't mean it, but I'm I'm letting everyone else know that you don't mean it as well. I mean I'm not even trying to be a smart ass. I know you know that that's a huge sacrifice he made for his country. But no, yeah, of course I yeah, know yeah. That. But that he's one of the few. Yeah. Tillman, Pat Tillman. Okay. Anyway, yeah. No. So the Pat Tillman story, if you want to look at a modern day guy that did that. Anyway, not to derail it, guy. Wait, wait! But I was trying to make a point. Well, about, hurry up! Wait about. You're the one that told me not to rush. I'm not rushing. I'm drinking whiskey and I'm not rushing. You fucking say what you mean to say. Okay, so it was a blanket <laughs> statement. I'm sure there are a lot of artists and successful people that drop everything and go to war. But what I'm saying is there seems to be like maybe at some point these artists really, that that maybe there's something missing with today's artists and that they don't experience. They're not tough. They're little bitches yeah. that if goddamn Montlier went around fucking uh, New York like, City, he'd just be not. fucking slicing throats and putting his heart up everywhere. Yeah. yeah. So, I think he would have taken one look at Andy, what's his name, fuckface Campbell's soup, and been like, hey, guy, why don't you go take your phone to God and walk, get out of here. Get out of here. Get the okay. fuck out of here. What's that dude's name? Andy what? What dude? Warhol. Oh, Andy Warhol. Yeah. yeah. Fuck that guy. Like, but, yeah. Fuck him. If Guy de Montlier was there, what do you think you would have said to him? I uh, he would have shot him in the face. In the fucking face. <laughs> He'd be like, "Hey, bro, how much did you suffer for your art?" Yeah. Oh, your parents didn't understand that you were kind of gay. I'm sorry. Oh. I was busy getting shot in the oh. face by German shrapnel. Oh, fuck um, you, so, bro. <laughs> okay, to drop this point and go back to Guy. Uh, can we please? So, in, in the exhibit, because we're also talking about the exhibit. So, in that exhibit. Do you think Andy Warhol would have joined for World War II? I, I know. I don't no, know. he wouldn't. I mean, wouldn't. I don't know. I don't want to speak for the guy. I will. He's dead. He was a fucking puss. Yeah. I'll speak for him. Hey, Andy Warhol's ancestors, if you want to find me, come fucking find me. <laughs> He's gonna come haunt you. Yeah, I'll fuck. Oh, I'll, I'll fuck like, you up. Choke you with a Campbell soup. I open carry, bitch. Anyway. <laughs> so going. okay, so in the exhibit, as you're learning about Guy de Montlore, there's this John Houston documentary, and something I read that about this documentary called "Let There Be Light" was that John Houston did it when he was in the army, and the army didn't release it because it. They wanted to create this idea that all of the soldiers fighting across uh, across the pond, you know, would come back and were heroes and were fine and valiant. And they wanted to kind of obscure the... Valiant? Yeah. Okay. And they wanted to kind of obscure the... The fact that there's consequences the, to, the to almost dying. Psychological consequences, yeah. yeah. And so they didn't actually release the film, I think, until like 20 years later. And you can now watch the film on YouTube if you're interested. And if you like John Houston, who is a famous director? Apparently. Apparently. Yeah. So anyway, okay. So that's you see that in the exhibit. I just All right, thought that was interesting. Are we done? Are you good? No. Do you want me to keep talking? Not about that. About John Houston? No, not about Cause that. Because you're really into it. I'm not. Anyway, I'm so. I'm trying to talk about the exhibit. Also, and the broader context, but okay. so guy fights until World War Two's over, and uh, that's about it. And then, so it was cool, which is they don't really talk about it in the internet, but they talked about it there. 
is how he transitioned from World War II to uh, post-World War II. So World War II ends, and he goes back to France, and he lives uh, in the same place he kind of grew up, and he buys a house there with his wife, who he's still married to, the uh, barn softcore porn girl. That was love back in the days. Yeah, if you could find a girl named after Barn softcore porn. People don't do that nowadays. Oh, they do. And you, uh, you with your assumptions. Pat Tillman, look him up. American hero. Oh, I'm sure he was. I'm sure he was. I anyway, mean, just says, yeah. Anyway, guy uh, moves out and he starts painting. I mean, just doesn't. It's so crazy to think that you experience all that, which I yeah. can't even imagine. Five years of seeing your country get destroyed, and then having to fight and almost die and see all your buddies die to win it back, and then you just start painting again. Yeah. And he doesn't bitch or complain or do anything you know he just is grateful at that point and lives life like he wants to yeah and i read something that said um i guess it was his daughter who was talking about like his inspiration was from nightmares he talks about the war as terror and fear but also love and many colors in explosions which is kind of cool he was definitely affected by the war for the rest of his life and one instance in particular, which they had in the museum, and I wish I had the date for it, but I know he was older in his, like, 40s, and a kid was hit by the vehicle that he was riding in. So he was riding in a vehicle with, with other people. He wasn't driving, and they hit a kid. And he got out of the vehicle, and he basically held the kid until he died. And he said from that point... Uh, basically everything that he had experienced in the war was in the forefront of his mind for the rest of his life. Yeah. And you can see it, what was so cool about that exhibit, because the first kind of half is just like war stuff and, and it's pictures from the war and it's showing stuff about the war and then the second half is just his work. And so you see his work post-war, which is good, but it's not... I don't know, it didn't really do anything for me. And then you see his work as soon as that accident happens with the kid and something totally changes in him. And his work becomes very uh, violent and it you can't... I remember seeing the first painting, which was of a German soldier dying uh, in the invasion of Normandy. Oh yeah, I remember that one. And I, uh, I like teared up a little bit. I mean, it it hit yeah, me. Yeah, well, you you tear up all the time about everything. <laughs> I'm not I'm not a bitch. I'm not a bitch. I'm just combat stress. Just no. saying. No, but he. Uh, no, but you're right. That one was pretty pretty intense. Yeah, way to take away from it. Try to belittle me. That's fine. Well, you did. You no, were doing fine. that to me, so I that's was, that's fine. You know, that's fine. Anyway, you see the painting, and it struck a chord in me that none of his other work had really done. And then the next painting was a picture of his friend dying in war. Yeah. And uh, both of them, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I don't know if if I would have seen those paintings without the description, if they would have hit me as hard. But when you see the paintings and you hear or you read what it's about and what he what he was drawing in reference to, uh, both those paintings hit me really, really hard. And then after that, like four or five years after that, he has some paintings that are so beautiful. Um, and so I, you could tell that his style was severely influenced by the war. Yeah, and I mean, the exhibit is called In Memory of What I Cannot Say. And so, I mean, he, it was something in, in the little descriptions in the paintings that always talked about how, you know, he couldn't... And his daughter, from what I read his daughter talking about how he never talked about anything with his kids about the war and it was all he had was these paintings and if you look at his paintings um a lot of them are they have like that a lot of color a lot of distortion very violent a lot of them were very violent so they're pretty abstract but you can still detect you can detect a, a very clear subject in every single one of the paintings, which is not always the case with abstract paintings. Um, 
and and that's when like we've his early stuff was more baroque style i guess that's when he was listening to bach but some of his older uh the later stuff that you're talking about so you can look it up online and see how those colors kind of mesh together and um and create this this chaos yeah i mean no he, he listened to bach his whole life Oh, did he? While he painted, yeah. If you would have paid attention to the museum, you would have known that. No, well, I remember reading that. But if looking at the paintings, so his earlier stuff is a lot more, like, cubist style. Do you remember? Yeah, well, I mean, I think that's the way of most artists is you imitate what inspires you first, and then you find your own legs yeah. and you go no, your own No, I'm not criticizing it. I'm just saying towards the end he got a little bit more he had his own thing yeah he had his own thing going yeah on. his his last few paintings were just absolutely gorgeous and i don't like cubist and if you don't know what a cubist is it's picasso yeah it's the kind of picasso style and it's uh it's too ab abstract for me but uh his stuff is uh really cool and honestly at this point i don't know if it's really cool because he was such a badass or if uh if it was actually good. I think that's the way with all art, right? I don't know, but it's interesting. So, the whoever, and I read the guy's name, but... Is it Guy? Whoever said, no. <laughs> whoever came up with the exhibit, I thought was great. Because there there's a narrative to it, right? You walk in, you, you learn about this guy's story, then you read a, or hear about... What other veterans and events, what they went yeah. through and and the psychological and then you see his work and so it was it was very cleverly and beautifully put together as an exhibit and coming from someone that comes from a small city where we don't have very many art museums I mean we have one art museum and it's not very big but there's that you oh, know, I haven't you, seen art like that in you Orleans appreciate ever. that kind yeah, of yeah. organization to the story it's I mean, very well done. There's some cool uh, local galleries in New Orleans, and I've seen some cool art in New Orleans. Uh -huh. But that, I mean, that was those were paintings that were supposed to be in the Louvre. I mean, yeah. his his work is that of a master. He spent every day painting yeah. from his youth till he died, and he was an absolute warrior. And it's just amazing to me. Because what kills me about today's culture is you, that there's a separation of those two ideas. Exactly, yeah. That, that one can only be an artist or one can only be a warrior. Yeah. And, and back then, and that's what I was trying to get at with uh, looking at a picture of him. Because mm -hmm. when you see a picture of him, he looks very, very normal. Yeah. But there, you could see it if you've seen, you know, the guys that I've seen. You, you look at that dude's face and there's an amount of seriousness there that I would not want to fuck with. Yeah. And it says that if you decide to boot heel through my country, I'm going to fuck you up until I die. Yeah. Or at least try to. And Yeah, and that's part of what I was getting to also with the, you know, just the kind of John Huston thing. Not, I don't even, you know, I'm Are we not still even on a, that? No, I'm not even really You're a still big tired. fan. I mean, you made the point. But just this idea that artists were, like, <laughs> were transcending patriotic things. and they were trying and to do stuff. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, I like see that saying. kind of thing. And there's other examples. I mean, like, Walt Disney was a vet. Um, Didn't Elvis Elvis was in. Uh, Johnny Cash. A bunch of baseball players did that. Johnny Cash was apparently like a world star code cracker for the Air Force. Like he could crack codes that no one else could. Yeah. And uh, yeah. what's his name? Uh, Mr. Rogers, which no one really knows about. Um, Mr. Rogers was a vet. And apparently, I need to research this, but I'll just tell you my uninformed opinion. From what I heard from someone else who told me, he was pretty much a, like, special forces badass oh yeah and then he put on a cardigan he's like hey you want to be my neighbor covered that in the movie i don't know we got to watch it it's not out yet with tom hanks yeah yeah well that, well if it's tom hanks he'd know that well he'd be i mean that. he only does stuff that involves yeah some kind of badass so. so but anyway so that's that's a good point too about art and yeah, I it's see so just, much art nowadays. It's it's to be masculine is to create, you know, and it's it's feminine too. But I think uh, 
To be human. To be human is to, to create. create. And there's a there's a side to masculine where it's back then if you were if you were an artist and you knew the world and you could communicate that, it wasn't something that was nerdy. Yeah. It was something that was noble. It was something that was necessary. Yeah. And now and it's it's not necessary. Now it's kinda weird, right? Yeah. It's and you still see I mean there's people who do it now like uh, Terry Crews, I don't know, you know who he is? Uh-uh. Huge Jack Black dude that does the Old Spice commercials. Oh, okay. He actually plays, like, music, and he's mm. super smart, and, like, he's a guy that got famous because of his muscles and because he kind of looks like a meathead, mm. but if you actually know about him, he's, like, a whole human being. Oh, he's not a half human being? No. Oh. He's not a half human being. Oh, okay. You know what I'm saying, though. Yeah, no, I and know. And there's a bunch of people like and that. And I think that's you... what's missing in art. Uh, is you the know, ability to be masculine? Is <laughs> masculine, sure, but also just... More dick in art. Just more fierceness and a little bit more edge. Like, there's no edge in art anymore. Yeah, unapologetic. And it's... Exactly. And so it's... Or music, in a lot of music. I mean, that's a blanket statement, too, because I don't know a lot of today's music, but... Uh, or a lot of people that make the music. But, you know, this this edge that that it's sometimes think, missing. I don't know. Yeah. It's, it's funny how you uh, hear narratives and you see narratives. And when you're a kid and when... You, you only see what gets put in front of you. That's the idea you have. And I would say that if I wasn't as inquisitive as I was, I would not have the ability to know that uh, artists were supposed to be badass. Is they, Yeah, they are. And, you know, back in the day, it was the same thing with poets. Like poets or, oh, yeah. or you know, Ernest Hemingway or whoever. Like Sir, William, Hemingway Sir William Blake, bro. Was, yeah. Uh, you know, these guys were He volunteered there. to go to Italy and drive ambulances before you could join. Exactly. Before, before Americans could join the World War, he joined to go volunteer somewhere to do something because he knew that it was an issue. Yeah. And he was a man. He, that dude was a man. <laughs> Did you ever hear a story about Hemingway's uh, nephew? No. So Hemingway's nephew joined uh, an airborne unit and he... <laughs> that whole family was crazy. He packed fishing reels in his radio equipment. Oh. So he did. He did. He packed fishing rails, and uh, and he ended up getting captured whenever his airborne unit landed. And he was able to mail out a letter to his family. And the first thing his family asked him when they write back is, "How's the fishing going?" Uh, wow. That whole family that. is nuts. Yeah. Well, there. Yeah, there you go. I mean, there's. You need that in art. You need that kind of men in art. Too. And women. There's some badass women too. Yeah. I yeah. Know. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to go totally masculine there because there were, especially with that uh, Churchill's service mm-hmm. or whatever that we talked about. There were some badass women in and there. There and was there, women, yeah, women in the French Resistance. Especially because they were not suspected, so they could be a lot more. Well, sneaky. I mean, when you're a man and you see a cute woman, you're not. I mean, you're thinking one thing. Yeah, well, you're thinking of one thing. No, I'm not just thinking one thing. Every guy who's listening is thinking the same thing. Okay. What do you think that thing is? Uh, can she cook? I want to. Can she cook? <sighs> no. You know, we, what do you we think have it is? something kind of What do you think it is? Classic. What do you think going. it is? What do you think it is? He wants I to know if she can cook her <sighs> cook eggs well. Yeah, she's going to cook my eggs well. No, no, I mean, there was cool women in World War II, too, and there's been cool women through history, and it's the same as, the same idea that we're talking about with uh, artists separated from warrior, mm-hmm. is the same idea with, uh, like, the female is not supposed to be, like, you're not supposed to be ashamed of being a caregiver, mm-hmm. because they had a bunch of awesome women who were women, but were still warriors yeah. in their own right. And uh, Well, I mean, a lot of those nurses, you know, um, <clears throat> I mean, just talking about the nurses in those ships, you know, who oh, yeah. were down at the bottom and could get torpedoed in any second, you oh, know, yeah. and they were out there caring for those guys. I mean, absolutely. So, 
Yeah, but anyway, Guy de Montlar. Guy de Montlar. If you haven't looked him up, look him up. Dude was a total badass. He's done more cool stuff than I'm ever going to do in my life. And if you're near New Orleans. Nolens. Nolens. Babe. Nolens. Baby. You got to get down to that museum because it is absolutely worth it. Yeah, if you ever visit there, it's cool to see the French Quarter. Uh, that's, that's, you know, a once-in-a-lifetime thing. But the World War II Museum and what they've done with it is uh, worth a visit for sure. You can spend a whole uh, day there. And easily a spend a day, day there. Yeah. Oh, and we also, just as a side note, we went to the cafe and I had my first po' boy sandwich. How do you spell po' boy? P-O apostrophe boy. Yeah. And it was delicious. So you need to do that as well. What about bread? What's the bread supposed to taste like on a po' boy? The bread is supposed to be dry because you want to moisten it with mayo. That's right. Blue, blue plate mayo. And if they try, and they'll do this because there's hipsters everywhere now. If they're like, hey, we've got a nice aioli on here. <laughs> you say, hey, fuck off with your aioli. Just mayo. Yeah. Do not even fucking have the aioli in the kitchen when you make my po' boy, please. <laughs> and I will put my own amount of mayo on there. And you want to drench it in mayo. I will mayo this bitch up. You will mayo it until the bread has absorbed it and become soft. And so every time I think about that sandwich, my, my mouth waters. Every time? Is that normal? That's normal. Okay. Yeah. Because that, that's been happening a lot. French are uh, the French are pretty are pretty cool. You know, not only did they fight that war, but they also uh, did a lot of cool stuff in the U.S. too. Unless that's from Louisiana, Louisiana. Louisiana. So that's today in World War Two. I think we'll end it on that note. And you got any closing words, Maxine? That's a wrap. Don't get be yourself a pole boy. Get yourself a pub boy. <laughs> oh.